Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, we have Bibles available for you to use. They're in the pew rack in front of you, or if you're sitting on an aisle, they're underneath your seat. You'll get one of those out and open it up to page 1187 for this morning's scripture reading. This letter from the Apostle Paul to his disciple in the faith, Timothy, we receive some very important instruction as to what our relationship is to this nation and its leadership. We are citizens of America, or at least the majority of us are. But for sure, those who know Jesus Christ, we are citizens of an eternal kingdom. And we are but pilgrims and aliens passing through. In the providence of God, he has placed us here in this day and age, in this land where we do enjoy an unprecedented amount of freedom, certainly compared to the saints of old and those that have gone before us. We have an opportunity to gather here unhindered, unafraid, to openly worship our God, And so let us make the most of the opportunities that God has given us. For, beloved, we don't know how much longer such things come. I do know this, that compared to the history of the church of Jesus Christ in the last 2,000 years, we are in a bubble. We are in a bubble. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. First of all, then, I urge that in treaties and prayers... Petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God... And one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony born at the proper time. And for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Join me as we pray. Our God, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he and he alone is the one mediator between you and us. He is our access into your presence. It is by his sacrificial death that our sin has been extinguished. That our guilt has passed to him and was satisfied on his cross. That we are indeed citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And that this life is but a vapor. That we are but passing through. 
And yet, our Father, in your providence, we are passing through now in this day, in this age, and in this place. And we are tremendously grateful, our Father, to live in this, in this time. Our Father, we enjoy an unhindered access, not just spiritually, but culturally, socially. None of us, our Father, have suffered for our faith to the point of shedding blood. We're living in a a day of prosperity, a day of peace. Not a day of persecution, not not a day of calamity. And yet, our Father, we know that that could change in a moment's notice. So we pray that you would enable us to make maximum use of the opportunity we have to make known the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ from one end of this great land to another. And you have given us here, our Father, through Paul's instruction to Timothy, some very specific things for which we are obligated to pray. You have spoken to us about our need to pray on behalf of those who are in authority over us, our government. Recognizing, our Father, as we do, that all governments are of You. You are the one who raise up kings. You are the one who puts them down again. And so, our Father, we do pray. And we pray specifically in accordance with the Scripture here that You might grant wisdom, that You might grant a righteous character, that You might grant a noble boldness to those who are in authority over us to do that which is right in spite of the pressures that surround them. We pray, our Father, for our president and vice president and those who serve in his cabinet, those who are bringing him advice on a regular basis to deal with the complexities of this very dangerous world. Our Father, we have no idea what role across His desk. We have no idea what weigh upon His heart and mind, what keep Him awake at night. But we know, our Father, that they are significant. And we know this, our Father, because we can look into the face of those that have gone before Him and see how it has aged them as they have carried heavy burdens. Lord, as Paul says here, it is our desire to lead a a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We seek not persecution, our Father. We seek only to be able to live in righteousness and to preach the gospel. If persecution comes, may you strengthen us not to wilt. But Lord, we do pray that you would be merciful to us as a people and not give us that which we deserve, but continue to grant us your grace. We continue as well, our Father, praying as instructed here for the salvation of all men, including those who are in authority over us. Lord, may the pressures of their public service Break them of their human pride, of their self-sufficiency. May you use these current economic times 
in which there is so much uncertainty, in which so many have lost so much, in which those false confidences which have now been eroded, may you use that to open people's eyes to the reality that these things are but temporal. They are passing away. There is no substitute. There is no satisfaction in this life outside of Christ. May our leaders come to that understanding and may you grant them faith to believe. May you grant us faith to believe. Courage, our Father, to preach the gospel. Let us stand firm and not compromise. Let us go forth with love, caring for our fellow man. But above all, above all things, let us be absolutely infatuated with Jesus Christ and His glory. For He alone is worthy. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, page 1227, if you're using a pew Bible. I want to add my congratulations to Ryan and Danae. I also want to tell you that as a preacher, it's always your earnest desire that your preaching would, would move people. That they would, they would hear and heed the Word of God. And for the last year or so, a little over a year, I've been, had the privilege of working among the college and career age group of our fellowship here. And I've been preaching to them from the book of Genesis. And this morning we just began chapter 4. For almost a year now I've been working on Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And it has been the most productive preaching of my life. It is not good for a man to be alone, it says, in chapter 2. And guys are listening. It is, it is exciting. It is exciting. <laughs> I'm loving it. Well, as everybody knows, in order to drive a spike into a piece of wood, you have to hit it with a hammer more than once. You have to hit it over and over again with well-placed blows until you drive it deep into the wood. So it is with the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, this teaching. For the past few weeks, I have been repeatedly hitting the nail on the head, as it were, to try to drive this thing deep. I want to rivet it into your hearts and minds. This is our blessed hope. And so week after week, we've been accumulating reasons like hammer blows on the head of the nail. And this morning, we arrive at our tenth and final reason. This is the one that's going to set the nail. We're going to set the nail for you this morning. Last week in your bulletin, we provided a two-page insert that accumulated... The evidence is for the first nine reasons. If you were not able to be here last week, there are some copies of those available on the back of the sound booth. You can pick one up after service and take it with you. So you have the first nine. This morning, inside your bulletin, there is 
a back-to-back insert that has the tenth and final reason. So if you accumulate all these together, put a staple through them, you will have all ten reasons laid out for you in a format that hopefully you can follow and study on your own until this doctrine becomes as dear and precious to your soul as it is to ours. So I commend those to you. Beginning next week, we take up the second of the seven prophetic events awaiting fulfillment, the rise of Antichrist. But this morning, we are finishing here with our tenth reason. We believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church because of the promise of Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Because of Revelation 3.10. The last book of the Bible is the book of Revelation. In that book, the Apostle John, at the explicit instruction of the resurrected Christ, records for us a vision that stretches from John's time in A.D. 96 all the way forward to the end of recorded time. One great vision that is recorded for us. The book can be easily divided along a number of schemes, but one that I think works really well is in verse 19 of the first chapter where John, writing at the words of Christ, write therefore the things which you have seen, chapter 1, the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, and the things which shall take place after these things, chapters 4 through 22. Very simple way to outline the book. This book was sent to seven historic churches in a circular fashion. Each of the seven churches are addressees, as it were, of this particular book. Seven of them located in a clockwise route in western Turkey, what's modern-day Turkey, beginning with Ephesus, the city of Ephesus on the coast, and moving inland in a northwesterly circular direction until they end with Laodicea in the east. Some scholars believe, and I think this is as good a reason as any, that these seven cities were chosen because they contained postal distribution centers for the Roman government. This was the mechanism by which Rome moved the mail through this part of its empire. Each of these seven cities was a postal distribution center. They were located roughly 30 to 50 miles apart. Kind of the Pony Express idea. Now, each message located in chapters 2 and 3 had particular significance to a historic church. It was written in the context of a of a historic church in a historic city at a a period of time, probably somewhere around A.D. 95-96, addressing a particular concern of that church. But because of the circular nature, that is that the whole book of Revelation went to all seven churches, coupled with this repetitive refrain, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, indicates that the individual messages were applicable to all the churches. So each message written in a specific context to a specific church, addressed to a specific problem, but applicable to all seven. All seven. That's important, and I want you to remember that. Now, this sixth city to which the sixth letter is addressed is the city of Philadelphia, or brotherly love. 
It was the youngest city of the seven located here in the Apocalypse, and it was founded sometime around the 2nd century B.C. as a missionary city designed to spread Greek language and culture into the ancient kingdoms of central Turkey. Religiously, the city of Philadelphia was heavily involved in the worship of Dionysus, the goddess of wine. And that was because the surrounding geography was very, very good for the raising of grapes. It was good grape country. And so wine was plentiful, and they were given over to that depraved and debauched Greek religion. Philadelphia also had a very large Jewish population, part of the diaspora, and this particular Jewish population was extremely hostile to this fledgling Christian church. So that's the context in which this letter is written. Jesus evaluates the church here at Philadelphia as he does the other six churches. And unlike five of the seven in which he has a severe critique of them, this church has no critique, no condemnation, nothing but commendation. Jesus can only speak good about this church here at Philadelphia. And his commendation derives because of their faithfulness, because of their faithfulness. And it flows into a pledge from him to them for their deliverance, a pledge of deliverance. So let me read for you Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will give those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, in order that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it any more. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now this morning, I'm not going to take the time to exposit this whole letter. I've done that previously several years ago, and if you're interested, you can go online and you can download those two sermons and you can, you can listen to a fuller exposition of these verses. What I need to do, what, I, what I'm going to do this morning is focus really on verse 10. Verse 10. But in order to do that, we need to look briefly at verse 8 because it sets up the promise of verse 10. Verse 8, I know your deeds... Behold, I put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, grammatically, there are a few things in here that, 
that would cause us to, to rearrange this text a little bit. Again, I, I don't have time to lay that all out for you, but just take my word for it for now at least, where it says, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. That's a parenthetical statement. The flow of thought for this verse is, I know your deeds because, or better translated, that you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Those are the deeds that Christ knows and is commending this church for. You have a little power. You have kept my word. You have not denied my name. I know this. I know this. What Jesus is saying is that this church is insignificant in their community. They are persecuted within their community. They have a limited influence. They are numerically small. They are insignificant to the culture around them. But in contrast to their insignificant stature, Jesus highlights their fidelity to the Word of God. You have little power. You have kept my word. Do you see that? You have kept my word and have not denied my name. He is highlighting, he is pointing out that his commendation for them is based upon the fact that they have maintained their fidelity to the Scriptures, to the Word of God. They have not negotiated it in the face of opposition. So even though they're small, they have obeyed his Word, even faced with specific pressure to deny him. That's important. Because of that, Down to verse 10, you notice it begins with, Because because you have kept the word of my perseverance, because of their fidelity in the face of opposition, Jesus gives them a pledge of deliverance. He pledges to this church that he is going to deliver them. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Because the believers in Philadelphia had kept or obeyed Christ's command to endure patiently for his sake, therefore Christ promises to keep them out of the hour of trial which is coming upon the whole earth. That's his promise to them. Now I want to, I want to examine this promise in closer detail. And I want to do this through a series of five questions. I'm just going to ask, five, ask and answer five questions with regard to to this promise of deliverance here in verse 10. They're all on that sheet that was in your bulletin. You can follow along that if you like. Except I forgot to number them. Sorry. So the question, first question, what is the purpose of the testing and in what sense is it worldwide? My first question. What is the purpose of the testing and in what sense is it worldwide? First question. The word testing... The Greek word here in the New Testament has essentially two basic meanings. Two basic meanings. It can mean either that which is trying or testing of people in order to determine or demonstrate or expose the kind of people that they are. To draw out who they really are. If we could use this illustration, it would be like hot water and a tea bag. The tea bag is who they are. The hot water is what draws the flavor out of the bag. So testing used in this sense in the New Testament, and I've given you a lot of references there, check them on your own, is the idea of of drawing out or determining or demonstrating or exposing what kind of people you are. What's the flavor of your tea bag? 
The other way the word is used in the New Testament is of tempting or enticing someone to sin, used that way in James. And James clearly tells us God does not do that. God does not do that. Therefore, I feel extremely confident in saying here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, that the use of the word testing here and the promised deliverance of it is speaking about an hour of testing that would determine, demonstrate, or expose the kind of people that are being tested. That's an important thought you want to hold on to. This hour of testing purpose is to expose, make manifest, to determine what kind of people are being tested here. Beyond that, the testing is worldwide. Do you see that? I will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. In case you didn't get it in the first clause, I give it to you in the second. The whole world upon the earth. It is a worldwide testing. It's a worldwide testing. Beyond that, this expression, those who dwell upon the earth, you see that in verse 10? Those who dwell upon the earth is used repetitively in the book of Revelation. And every time it is used, it's 10 times specifically, it always refers to people who are hostile towards God and his people. Those who dwell upon the earth in the expression of the book of Revelation is always speaking about hostile people, hostile to God and hostile to his children. So the the idea here is that it is to expose or demonstrate or determine those who are hostile towards God and to his people. What this says is that the, that the purpose of the worldwide testing is to make visible the inner character of the earth's inhabitants, whether they're Jewish or Gentile. It's to make publicly known that which resides deep within the human heart. Now, Since the Philadelphian church has already demonstrated their inner character, they are therefore exempt from the need to be tested. They are exempt from the testing. I know your deeds, verse 8. I know your deeds, verse 10, because you have kept. What Christ says is, because I know what your inner character is, therefore there is no need for it to be tested or made manifest. Second question. What is the hour of testing that Christ speaks of here? The hour of testing. Again, looking at verse number 10, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. Notice the definite article. It indicates for us that there is a particular hour in view here. It's not just any old hour. It is the hour of testing. The hour of testing. Not a general time, but a specific time. A time of special testing. A time that would be familiar to these Philadelphian believers. A time of testing that they would be aware of because of their knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures. You have to remember the believers of the first century, for the most part, their Bible is the Old Testament. And so we have to import these Old Testament understandings into this in order to be able to 
figure out what it is they would have thought. So when he speaks here about you will be kept from the hour of testing, the hour which is to come, about to come on the whole world, there is definitely an Old Testament context that goes behind this expression. According to the Old Testament, there is only one hour, as it were, one time period that fits the description of a worldwide testing. That time is many names in the Old Testament. It's called in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's 70th week. In Jeremiah chapter 30, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble or Jacob's distress. Daniel chapter 12, it's called a time of distress. Joel chapter 2, verse 31, it's called the day of the Lord. Matthew 24, 21, Jesus speaks of it as the great tribulation. This special time that is to come, that is to come, is that time prophesied by the ancients of a, of a great distress that would come upon the earth. Now, in the context of the book of Revelation, the horror of that time is detailed for us in chapters 6 through 19. If you want to know what the hour is going to be like, chapters 6 through 19 make it clear. The church at Philadelphia, when they received this whole book, it would have been read to them in the public service. And so, Shortly after talking about the hour, there would have been the detail of the horror of that hour. It would have been very vivid to them. Very vivid. Notice as well that he says the hour which is about to come. The period of testing was future to them. It was future to them. And it is future to us. It is future to us. Nothing resembling the worldwide distress foretold by the prophets has yet to come to pass. It is still future. So what is the hour of testing that Christ speaks of? He's speaking of the tribulation. He's speaking of the tribulation. Third question. Does this promise of protection mean that Christ will preserve them while they are present during the hour of testing or that he will remove them from the time period of testing? This is the, this is the crux of the issue. Is the promise of protection, and there's clearly a promise here, I will keep you from the hour of testing, right? So there's clearly a promise of deliverance or protection here. What does it mean? Is he promising them that he will preserve them during the hour or is he promising them that he will somehow remove them from that time period? He says, I will keep. I also will keep. You see it, verse 10? I will keep, future tense verb. Tereso is the future tense Greek verb here. It means to keep, to protect, or to preserve in the sense of watchful care. The promise that Christ is giving this church is is that he is going to provide for them some mode of complete protection or preservation during this upcoming crisis. And this promise is, again, based on the fact that they have already passed their test of faithfulness. Verse 8, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. There's no need for you to go through this. 
There's no need to expose what is really inside you because I already know what's inside you. I already know. I will keep you, he says, I will keep you from the hour. Do you see it? From the hour. I had a Greek professor once that said that the, that the prepositions are where it's at. Those little teeny words convey so much meaning. From, Greek, ek, out of or away from. Out of or away from. This indicates that Jesus' promise of deliverance involves movement away from the hour of testing rather than protection through the hour. Movement away from, that's the preposition ek, rather than protection through. In fact, if you were wanting to communicate the idea of being shielded from the testing while living within it and through its time period, there are other Greek prepositions that he could have used. He could have used the preposition en, which means in, or dia, which means through. But he didn't choose those. He chose, he chose ek, away from. Put together, his verb preposition combination, dereso ek, I keep you or I will keep you from. Now, this construction appears only in one other place in the Greek New Testament. Actually, there it's not a future tense of the verb. It's a present tense, but it's John, 15, or John 17, 15. Jesus' high priestly prayer where he prays, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Tereoek. Same verb preposition combination. And in that passage, Jesus is clearly not asking for the disciples to be kept from the presence of the evil one, but that he asked the Father to keep them safe from the power of the evil one while they're still in the world. So based on that, some would argue that here in Revelation 3.10, same author, same, relatively same Greek construction, that really what's What's going on here, the promise of Christ in Revelation 3.10 to the church at Philadelphia is that he will keep them safe during the coming hour rather than remove them from it before he comes. And at first glance, this is a somewhat persuasive grammatical argument. There is, however, a reason not to understand the promise this way. When you buy real estate, the most important factor is Location, location, location. In interpreting the Scripture, the most important factor is context, context, context. What is the context in which the verse appears? There is a different context here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, than in John 17, 15. And context trumps. Context trumps. In John 17, the promise is that they will be kept or preserved from the power of a person. That is, they will be kept out of the clutches of Satan. But in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, the emphasis is on deliverance from a period of time. Look again. I also will keep you from the hour of testing. It doesn't say I will keep you from testing. What it says is, I will keep you from the hour of testing. 
the period of time in which the trial exists, not just the trial itself. And the only way to keep someone from an entire period of time is to prevent them from entering into it. The only way to keep someone from an entire period of time is to prevent them from entering into it. That's huge. In the interest of time, number four. Number four. How does this promise apply to the church at Philadelphia? How does it apply to the church at Philadelphia? This is written to them. So what does it mean? How does it apply? The implication here, and a very strong implication, is that the deliverance will coincide with the return of Christ. Mentioned in the very next verse, verse 11, I am coming quickly. Do you see it? I will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. The doctrine of eminency. There's the expectation for these believers, the real and rightful and logical expectation that Christ is coming very quickly and will deliver them from the time period. That is their expectation. That's what the text says. That's the promise. Now this is where you have to think with me. If Christ had returned during their lifetime, he would have delivered them via the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. If he had come, he would have delivered them by the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. He would have caught them away before the storm. But he didn't come, did he? He didn't come. And since he didn't come... They were not delivered in that way. They were delivered through death. They were delivered through death. The promise remained for them a valid promise. I am coming quickly. I can come at any moment. And when I come, I will deliver you. But the fact that he didn't come and they died means they were delivered. They were delivered. And in my mind, it goes a step beyond that. Because according to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and in verse 16, that when Christ descends with a shout, right? The voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, what happens? The dead in Christ do what? Rise first. And then we who are alive and remain do what? Join them to meet Christ in the clouds and thus we shall always be with the Lord. They will not miss out on the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Fascinating, isn't it? The promise is true and valid. Had Christ returned while they were alive, he would have snatched them away. He did not return while they were alive, but they will, not, they will nonetheless still participate in the pre-tribulation rapture, for the dead in Christ will rise first. It's fascinating, isn't it? You have to remember back when I told you about the doctrine of eminency, I told you that it's not a time related. What it means is it overhangs. It could be at any moment. And thus that is true. Now let me bend your mind with one more. By the way, God is not bound by our reckoning of time. Okay? 
Just kind of keep that in mind. God is not bound by our reckoning of time. Question number five. In what way is this promise relevant to any other church besides Philadelphia? This is where rubber meets the road. In what sense is this promise relevant to any other church besides Philadelphia? That is, is this only for them back there in AD 96? And when that all of them died out, is that it and done? We might as well chop it out of the Bible. It doesn't mean anything to us. Is that a correct interpretation? You know it's not a correct interpretation because your whole New Testament, for the, the large portion of it, is made up of letters to churches in historical context, right? And yet we find it to be absolutely applicable to us today. It's easy for you to say, Dean. So in what way is this promise relevant? In what way is this promise relevant? This is where it gets fun. Let me turn you back to chapter 2 and verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. I'm going to do this quickly. To the church at Ephesus, chapter 7. Or chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, to him who overcomes. And then there's a promise. Take you to verse 11, same chapter. To the church at Smyrna. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes. Chapter 2, verse 17. To the church at Pergamum. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. Chapter 2, verse 25. Actually, let's pick it up in 26. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deed until the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. I also have received authority from my Father. I will give him the morning star. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 3, verse 5. To the church at Sardis, he who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. Verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter seven, or chapter 3 and verses 12 and following. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar, and so forth. Verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Finally, the seventh church at Laodicea, verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, why do I bother rehearsing that for you seven times? I rehearse it for you seven times because I want you to see it. I want you to understand that it is a promise that it was given to each of those seven churches individually, but collectively. Collectively. Beyond that, I want to remind you of something the Apostle John wrote, and not very much earlier than this, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 where he says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
Another name for Christians is overcomers. Overcomers. These promises recorded to these individual churches, broadened by the plurality statement, let the Let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to not just this church, the one you're a member of, but all churches, to he who overcomes, that is, to Christians. Therefore, answer to the question, how does this relate to us? Are you an overcomer this morning? Are you an overcomer? If you are by faith united to Jesus Christ, you are an overcomer. You are an overcomer. Therefore, the promise of deliverance to the church at Philadelphia applies to you as well. It applies to you as well. The book of Revelation was written for the benefit of multiple churches, seven there historically, and then to all the churches down through the ages, including Foothill Bible Church here and today. It is for us. This book lays out two endings. It lays out An ending of wrath or an ending of blessing. It puts them before you. Depending how you individually respond to the message and how the church as a whole made up of individuals, depending how we respond, we receive either the blessings of the message as it is spelled out in the balance of the book or we receive the cursings. You will either receive the blessing of the pre-tribulational rapture of the church an entrance into Christ's millennial kingdom, or you will receive the devastation of the tribulation followed by eternal consignment to the lake of fire. It's like a DVD that has two alternative endings. You get to the end and you've got ending A and ending B. Ending A, pre-trib rapture, entrance to the kingdom. Ending B, tribulation, lake of fire. And you get one ending or the other based upon, verse 8, I know your what? I know your deeds. I know your deeds. A promise of deliverance is available to all who imitate the loyal obedience of the Philadelphian Christians. This promise is relevant to all Christians of all ages. Ten reasons why we believe and teach a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Maybe the best way to close this study is to reflect upon the balance of the promise here in chapter 3. Beginning in verse 11, I am coming quickly, he says. I am coming quickly. Foothill Bible Church, hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to this church. Let's pray.
Our great God and Father, you have given us many promises. Many precious promises, our Father. But this certainly has to rank up there with one of the most precious. Because we are not destined to wrath. Not because of any goodness inherent in us. Not because we are special in some way and thus escape what many have gone through. Lord, for it is the wrath that the believers before us have gone through has not been the eschatological wrath that will come when Christ returns. Our Father, we know not what the future has for us. We know not your plans for us. We may go through some intense periods of persecution as a fellowship. Foothill Bible Church may be called upon by you to suffer intensely as the little church in Philadelphia was called upon to suffer. Small and insignificant with with limited resources and power. Disdained by their community. Harassed and humiliated by those who were antagonistic and hostile to them. And yet, our Father, we pray that as a fellowship, our character would emulate theirs. That we would remain firm and committed to your word. That we would persevere in spite of opposition, no matter where it would come. And that we would steady our hearts on the promise of deliverance. Our Father, we know not whether Christ returns in our lifetime, whether it be today, tomorrow, next year, or whether we close our eyes in sleep, waiting that day when He does return and the dead rise first. But whether it be today, tomorrow, or a thousand years, let us be found faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I finish this section of our series, I'm compelled again to plead with those among us who do not know Jesus Christ. There are some here for sure. Some of you have come and you've been listening. You've been under the conviction of the Spirit of God. You know within your own heart that should Christ return today, take his church home? Should he catch us away? Should he snatch us away? You know that that you would be sitting here all by yourself. Today is your day. Today is the day of salvation. So we end our service together and we're going to go ahead and end with a verse of music here, a song that I've been promising Ron we'd sing for three weeks. So at least we'll get one verse. But as we finish the singing, I'll be down here in the front. As that singing is finishing up, come see me. Come and talk to me. Let me open the Word of God with you. Show you how you too can have everlasting life. God bless you.